This morning, however, we are in, in Matthew chapter 5, in a series of studies in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so let's look this morning at chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we bow before its authority, and we acknowledge its truth. Lord, we pray. In what is, in many ways, an easy passage to understand intellectually, and yet a very difficult one to live out, that you would give us grace, certainly to understand what you're saying here, but also, Lord, to be able to live out what you instruct us to do here. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think this passage may be one of the ones that come to mind. Uh, When you think of uh, Mark Twain's quote, it's not the passages of the Bible I I don't understand that bother me, it's the passages that I do. Uh, And this is one of those that we can understand fairly easily enough. It doesn't require a whole lot of exegetical skill uh, or technique to understand what Jesus is saying here. But the actual application of it is uh, sometimes much more difficult than the intellectual understanding of the passage. As we come to this paragraph, we reach the end of a major uh, section or block of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that started back in verse 17, where Jesus is explaining his relationship to the Old Testament, to the law in particular, to the commands that were given there. And he explains that, He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And that in itself has huge implications for our lives. As Christians, we are not antinomians. What that means is we, as Christians, saved by grace, it doesn't mean that now we can live as though the law is no longer there. Or if God doesn't have standards that he calls for in our lives. Paul said, shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, absolutely not. Uh, praise God, we have a Savior who died for our transgressions of the law. Praise God, we have a Savior who lived perfectly in obedience to the Word of God, and it's on the basis of His record, not our own, that we're saved. But then the question is, how do we live as those saved by the grace of God? And the Old Testament law, especially the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is very instructive for us. Then the value of this passage is that we have Jesus' own teaching about various laws in the Old Testament. And we need to be careful to understand what Jesus is saying. When he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, 
Jesus is not taking exception to the Old Testament. Jesus is not uh, speaking in a contradictory way to Old Testament commands. Rather, he is explaining the commands. He's applying the commands. He is dusting them off and giving them fresh to the people of his day. Because unfortunately, over the years, the teaching had become distorted. It had become twisted, uh, even in some cases to say the very opposite of what it was intended. And so Jesus has begun in verse 21. You've heard it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and, and so forth. And going through and teaching on these various points. Some of them Ten Commandments. Some of them other commands in the Old Testament. Well, the one today is... Unusual. It's a little bit different because while it contains some teaching from the Old Testament, to be sure, there's some of it that is not found in the Old Testament at all. And so let's go ahead and look at that. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the first part we know is there because we read it just a few minutes ago, right? From Leviticus chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, we're familiar with that passage, though it's a somewhat obscure reference in Leviticus, to many of us a somewhat obscure book. Uh, Jesus singled it out as the second greatest commandment. First greatest commandment, Jesus said when he was asked, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. In other words, to love God, to be devoted to him with all of your being. The second commandment, now, that was from Deuteronomy uh, 6. That was familiar. That was the, the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Shema, Hebrew word to hear. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everybody knew that one, right? The second one was less obvious. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, not such an obvious reference in Leviticus, although many of the Jews would have been familiar with it, even though we might not be as familiar with Leviticus. But Jesus says all of the law, all the commandments hang on those two. Why? Because the first one speaks about our relationship to God. The second one speaks about our relationship to our fellow man. Which, by the way, is the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship to God. The last six commandments have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. And so, in a very obvious way, Jesus is saying the whole law hangs on these two commandments. You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. That's what the people were taught. But that second part finds no place in the Old Testament. To be sure, there were, there were this, the so-called imprecatory psalms, passages where uh, you know, the, the psalmist says, you know, your enemies are my enemies, I hate those whom you hate. But we need to understand those in their context in terms of the righteous judgment of God. But that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. As we saw last time, it says, do not resist an evil person. It's not saying that governments can't punish the criminal. It's not saying that governments can't resist an invader. Jesus is speaking here, and not even every person individually, but to Christians, to God's people. People who are distinct from the world, who are different from everybody else because we've been made alive by the Spirit because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and we are new creations in Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount especially governs the personal relationships of the follower 
of Christ. And we need to understand that that is where it is meant to apply. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? Well, obviously, he doesn't have any problem with loving your neighbor. He has a problem with this teaching that had uh, come along that you should hate your enemy. Well, that's not to be found in the Old Testament. How did that arise? Well, again, loophole finding, uh, trying to get away with as much as you can, uh, not wanting to be bothered with people who are difficult or cantankerous or hostile. The idea is my neighbor is, is my kinsman, a neighbor is a fellow Jew, a neighbor basically is anybody I like and who's easy to love, is, is practically what it came down to. And I'm told to love those people, my neighbor, family, people I like, friends, fellow Jews, people who are like me. But I can hate anyone else, anyone who's different, anyone who's not a Jew, anyone who's not basically someone I like anyway. That's kind of what it came down to. And what does Jesus do with that teaching? 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Especially in this context, the enemy is someone who persecutes you. You look at kind of parallel statements, love your enemy Pray for, which is an act of love, an act of seeking the well-being of someone. Pray for those who are your enemies because they persecute you, because they are hostile to you, because they seek to do you harm. Love your enemies. Love your neighbors, yes, absolutely. But Jesus says, not hate your enemies, but love your enemies. Pray for those who are antagonistic, who are hurtful toward you. Simple to understand. But if you've ever felt hurt, felt the pain from someone else's hostile or malicious action toward you, you know the difficulty of what Jesus is saying here. Now, before we look at some of the reasons that Jesus gives, think about this. Once again, Jesus isn't calling on his disciples to do anything that he himself hasn't already done. Luke 23, 24. Jesus, in the act of being murdered of being crucified, prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. John Stott puts it this way, If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence the Lord's prayer for his enemies, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies. What pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? You and I face nothing compared to what Jesus faced, and yet he prayed for those who persecuted him. How can you and I, with honestly the trivial malice we face in comparison, not pray for those who've done us wrong. Well, Jesus not merely gives the commandment. He gives here some motivation, particularly three motivations to to do what he's saying to do. Things that we can think about that beyond the bare command, the bare teaching, might help illuminate it and motivate us to practice this kind of active love toward our enemies. The passage we looked at last week, the one just prior to this, was somewhat passive. Passive non-retaliation toward those who would do us harm. Being willing to suffer harm uh, rather than maliciously or even in terms of revenge lash out at someone. But it goes beyond that. We need to take an active stance of actively showing love and grace 
and compassion and help to those who are our enemies, who are actively seeking our harm. Well, what are these motivations? First of all, the motivation to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us in order to show ourselves to be children of our heavenly father. In other words, because of our relationship to God. Now, it's a little bit difficult here to know exactly the way we should understand these words. Uh, it's also possible that Jesus isn't saying because you are children of God, but to show yourselves children of God so that you may be sons of your father, so that you may be seen to be sons of your father, to demonstrate that you are. But also it could be just to confirm that you are because sons of the father would behave in this way. In other words, uh, our character, our behavior shows the relationship, demonstrates the relationship that we have with our Father in heaven. Now, the scriptures indicate that if we belong to the Lord, if we are redeemed, if we're regenerate in Christ, it will change the way we live. There will be fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, in our, li- in our lives, the first of which is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Those things should be evident, at least to some degree, in the life of every Christian. Because that is what the Holy Spirit of God produces. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides within you. And so those qualities, beginning with love, will uh, inevitably, perceptibly show up in your life. And part of what it means to grow in grace, to grow to maturity as Christians, is that those things are demonstrated more and more. Now, other passages in Scripture speak to this. Uh, I think one key one is uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So, yes, you believe, but seek to add these qualities to your faith, to your life. Uh, Verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. A Christian who is showing, not showing these, or even showing the opposite of these, is ineffective. He's, He's not being salt and light. Or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. How do we demonstrate our calling? How do we demonstrate that we are one of God's elect and redeemed people, one of his elect? Well, it's not through some metaphysical or mystical exercise. It's through the fruit of the Spirit. It's through the changed lives that we see in God's people. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we can't backslide. It doesn't mean we can't hurt other people in our sin. But it does mean that there's a reality there that goes beyond just saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, and yet I live like the world. Um, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, if we are sons of God, we will have his character. Inevitably. But more than that, there should be a conscious desire and effort to imitate the character of God. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Just like children who love their father, 
uh, would like to be like him, want to imitate him. And children often will consciously imitate their father or their mother. Uh, he's saying imitate God. And so inevitably it's there, but it also should be a desire that we want to be like our father. We want to bear his image, bear his likeness. Uh, one writer puts, puts it this way. He says, if we are his sons, if we are children of God, we will have his character. To be persecuted because of righteousness is to align oneself with the prophets. Now, remember, that's back in verse 12. Uh, the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Rejoice and be glad, your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, he says, To be persecuted because of righteousness is to align oneself with the prophets. But to bless and pray for those who persecute us is to align ourselves with the character of God. Okay? Be persecuted for righteousness sake. We're right there with the prophets of old and, and the apostles and the saints who've lived ever since who've been persecuted for righteousness sake. But not merely to receive persecution, but to bless and to pray for those who persecute us. That's to align ourselves with the character of our heavenly father. And so the first motivation is that we are showing the character of God when we pray for those who persecute us and when we respond to their evil with good. Now, the second motivation actually takes that a little bit farther and talks about what it is about God that we're imitating. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The first motivation is to show ourselves to be children of God. The second motivation is to demonstrate to others, and especially those who we might consider to be enemies, to demonstrate to them God's common grace. Now, you may be familiar with the, the, the theological expression common grace as distinct from special grace. God's special grace is his saving grace. Now, grace is God's doing for us what we don't deserve, right? We deserve hell, we deserve wrath because we violated God's law, we've sinned against him, we've rebelled against him, and God has sent a Savior. And when we repent and believe in Jesus, we are saved. That's God's special grace, his saving grace to whoever will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in him. But we also can think about God's common grace, because while God shows this almost inconceivable goodness to sinners in saving them, covering their sins with the blood of his own son, adopting them into his family. God also shows goodness, undeserved goodness, to all of his creation. And we refer to that as God's common grace, his undeserved goodness and favor that all of creation enjoys. It doesn't mean that they're saved. It just means that they are receiving from God far better, far more than what they, as fallen sinners, Deserve. Now, this is a theme throughout Scripture. I'll just uh, read you a few verses. If you're taking notes, you can just jot down the reference. Um, Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. God is good, certainly to his children, but God is good to those who are not his children. He, he blesses many unbelievers with a good marriage, with children with a, a productive and, and prosperous employment. Uh, God blesses the world in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, New Testament reference, Acts uh, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. This is 
Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, uh, and they are in the town of Lystra. And Paul says, in past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good, with food rather, and gladness. Yes, the nations were ignorant of God in a degree, certainly of his saving plan. But as Romans 1 says, Paul argues there, God has revealed himself through what he has made. And here he refers specifically, as Jesus does, to the rains from heaven, to crops that grow, to prosperous and healthy and happy lives, blessings of God's goodness, even to people who didn't know him, even to people who didn't recognize him as the Lord. One other reference, also from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17, verses 24 through 25. And uh, I sometimes, as I did this morning, refer to this verse before the offering Uh, It's one of my favorite verses uh, in Scripture, a couple of verses, 24 and 25, where Paul's in uh, in Athens or at Mars Hill speaking at the Areopagus there. He's by himself, a wonderful chapter of Paul preaching the gospel to the intellectual elites and sophisticates of Athens. Um, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. You know, they had their, their altar to the unknown God, and Paul says, well, let me tell you about this God. Uh, he doesn't live in temples like Diana. Uh, he's not served by human hands as though he were somehow feeble and dependent on us, as if he needed what we give him, as if he needed our applause or our worship. Uh, no, just the opposite. Everything that we have, everything that we enjoy comes from the hands of this God. As James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so God's common grace is what Jesus is referring to here when he says he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Imagine if God were going to say, the sun's only going to come up for those who are my children. Well, metaphorically, that's true. The son of righteousness is risen with healing in his wings, Right? Uh, But no, in terms of of the cosmos, the day dawns for the unbeliever, just like the believer, for the wicked, just like the righteous. Uh, God sends rain on the the crops of the the righteous as well as the unrighteous. So uh, believer, uh, sinner, elect, reprobate alike experience the goodness of God through his common grace. Now, getting back to what Jesus is saying. That's one aspect in which we reflect our Father's character, a general benevolence and beneficence toward all. Not singling someone out for good treatment because we like them, not singling out someone out for, for, for less than good treatment because we don't like them, but showing goodness, showing love, showing grace to all, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And so that's a second motivation that Jesus gives us for loving our enemies. On the one hand, generally, because we want to show ourselves to be children of our Heavenly Father, specifically because we want to reflect His common grace, both to those who bow the knee to Him and to those who don't. And so we are like our Father in Heaven when we are impartial in showing love to others, in showing grace to others. But there's a third motivation that Jesus gives here in this passage, and it's found in verse 46. 47, the motivation to distinguish ourselves as God's people from the world. 
Now, we're not talking about elitism here but by no means. I mean, who more than the Christian to, uh, to be humbled, to recognize that he has nothing that has not, has not been given to him by the grace of God. But to distinguish ourselves, not to put ourselves above the world, but to distinguish ourselves in terms of being those who have experienced God's grace, those who are called by his name, those who belong to the Father through the work of Jesus. And let's look at what he says here, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now that had to hurt, because as you may know, tax collectors were a despised group in Jewish society, uh, not only because they were usually dishonest, collecting more than was required, but they were working for Rome, the occupation, the enemy. Uh, and collecting taxes for Rome. They were basically free agents out there, and, and whatever they could collect was fine as long as they turned their quota in. The rest they could pocket. And so if you owed five drachmas in tax, a couple of denarii, whatever it might be, and they came and said you owe ten, well, that seems like a lot. Well, that's what it is. Yeah, you fork over your ten, and they turn two into Rome, and you, they pocket eight. Uh, and we have encounters with tax collectors in, in the scriptures, and Jesus encounters uh, with them, and uh, the, 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 the contempt and that the people had for them. Well, Jesus says, you know, even tax collectors love those who love them. Even tax collectors have their friends and those who do good to them, and so they do good in return. You know, better than a tax collector, if you just love those who love you. But then he also turns the knife in. Once he's got it in, he turns it. And verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And you could, again, kind of see their hackles, right? Ugh, Gentiles. Well, Jesus is saying if you just greet those who greet you, greet those your brothers, well, even Gentiles do that. If we wanted to put it in modern terms, even Saddam was good to people who liked him. You know, even Hitler had people he, he, he was kind to and who were kind to him. Jesus is, and really that's the essence here. What more is there in you than you'd find in the world? If you only love those who love you, if you only speak to those who'll speak to you, fine, but you're no different from the world. What more is there that distinguishes you as a son or daughter of God that you wouldn't find in the world. What more? Because as God's people, we should be characterized by something more than you would find in the world. And that more is that, yes, we love those who love us. We speak to those who speak to us. But we also love our enemies. And we pray for those who are seeking to do us harm. Maybe even seeking to do us in you don't find that in the world. You won't find that in the non-Christian. To love those. Actively seek the well-being of those who may be seeking our harm. Leaving revenge in God's hands, as we read earlier in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Are you able to be content with that? To leave justice in God's hands. Not to seek revenge. But more than that, to actively seek the good of those you would consider to be your 
enemies. One writer states it well. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. To return evil to someone when they've done us good is devilish. To return good for good, well, that's just human. But to return good for evil shows the character of our Father in heaven. Now, Jesus closes with verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, maybe you, and I know I have quoted this verse as the reason we need Christ, because none of us is perfect. And that's true. But in the context, what is the perfection Jesus refers to here? Well, it's not absolute moral perfection. And in fact, you can't interpret it that way because within this chapter, Jesus has indicated that's not the case. Remember, we started out talking about we're poor in spirit. We mourn for our sins. We hunger and thirst for righteousness that we don't have. And in chapter 6, Jesus is going to teach us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus is acknowledging we're not morally perfect people. And that's not what he's saying here in the context. What is the perfection here? Well, the word that's translated perfection can mean perfect in the sense of without flaw. But it also has the idea of being complete. You know, the perfection is, is the completion, the completeness. And I think both of these ideas are in play, but maybe it helps to think of the idea of completion. You see, the world loves those who love them and hates their enemies. Christians love those who love them and love their enemies. That's the completion. That's the perfection. And that statement not only summarizes what Jesus is saying here, that our completion, our perfection is seen, and that we not only love our neighbors, but we love our enemies. It really goes back to what Jesus was saying back in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem was the scribes and Pharisees' religion was often superficial surface level, without regard for the heart, without regard for the purpose of the scriptural teaching. When Jesus says here, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, loving not only your neighbor but your enemy, that reflects not just a desire to be outwardly obedient, outwardly righteous, but that affects the heart. That shows that the heart has been changed because only someone who has experienced the grace of God will love not only his neighbor, but his enemy. That's the exceeding righteousness. That's the surpassing righteousness that goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. Not just a concern with appearance, but a concern with the heart. And a real righteousness of heart, not just before the eyes of man, but before the eyes of God. Dear friends, if you don't have that righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you have not entered the kingdom of heaven. There has to be something more than a veneer, than an appearance of righteousness. To be a merely a good church goer, to be merely a morally acceptable person. Are you concerned about what your heart is like before the all-seeing eyes of God? 
Well, God sees our sin, and a passage like this certainly drives us to our knees to ask God's forgiveness for those times we've been vengeful, hateful toward other people. But it also gives us hope, because God himself in Christ supplies this righteousness. Remember Jesus praying for his enemies, praying for those who were persecuting him, showing them love. He did that for you, where you didn't do it, and where you and I have failed. He was doing that Because that's what the law called for. And he was fulfilling perfect obedience to the law. Not for himself, but for you and for me. When he prayed that prayer, Father, forgive them. That was your righteousness. That was mine that Jesus was winning. And that is given to the person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're comforted to know Jesus has won this righteousness for us already. But dear friend, if you're a child of God, you have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the scriptures. It is possible for you to begin to live this way. Indeed, if you are a child of God, you must. And more than that, you will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, none of us in this room can say that we have been obedient here. Lord, how easy we've enjoyed uh, loving those who love us, who are good to us, who are easy to get along with, who treat us well. Lord, how much we have cursed, not blessed, slandered, not prayed for, spoken against, not encouraged, those whom we perceive to be enemies, those who have been spiteful toward us, those who have been malicious toward us, those who have been unkind toward us, if not outwardly, Lord, then certainly in our hearts, a co-worker, a classmate, a driver, family member. Lord, we ask your forgiveness. We are an unclean people. We are sinners. We thank you that Jesus has obeyed your law for us. Lord, if it were not for that, we would be lost. Lord Jesus, we praise you. Thank you for forgiving murderous, hateful people for us. But make us that way. Lord, we do want to be like our Father in heaven. Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to show that Grace, that supernatural grace, even toward people who are hard to love, even toward people who are enemies to us, and show ourselves to be children of our Heavenly Father, to show ourselves to be new creatures in Christ, to show ourselves to be otherworldly citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, this is real, and we pray for this in our lives. Give us the opportunity, Lord, to apply this, to do this, this week. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.